this month's Archimedes. We have a store of delight in for you, along with the understanding the word reliable, stuff about babies, and some other stuff about babies. We always take a clinical question as the start of all of the need for evidence, then go and find the best evidence to answer that question, appraise it, look at its strengths and its possible weaknesses, synthesize it, bring all of that together, but do so in a way that is focused on an answer that would be usable by the jobbing paediatrician. Now, one of the key things that we talk about a lot is whether we can believe the evidence. And, and a word that frequently gets used is the word reliable. And we're going to think about that in the first section. If something is described as reliable, what springs to mind? Dull but dependable? Solid and sure? It's a word that gets bandied about with respect to clinical studies. And I've often wondered quite what the user of the word means, apart from it being some sort of vague feel of overarching good science stuff. When I think of a study and its findings as being reliable, I use the word really as a conflation of a series of ideas. The, the, the first being that the study describes truthfully what was done in the world. The second being that the results are likely to be reproducible. If somebody did that study again, they would get similar results because everything is explained well enough to understand how it was done. The thirdly, that the results of the study are clinically precise, the mathematical uncertainty about how effective the treatment is or the test is or, or the prognostic feature is, um, doesn't, doesn't swing me really from a, a, a use to a don't use position. It, it might be mathematically uncertain, but, but even on the limits of that uncertainty, it still gives me the same feel. Uh, and fourthly, that the outcomes are valid ones. They are reflections of something in the world which is meaningful to the patient, such as a, a well-measured quality of life or a proxy for it, or the shrinkage of a radiological tumour where we know that radiology and outcome are related. Now, as with many compound ideas like this, the concept can be a useful shortcut to explaining different elements of what makes up good. It comes with a price, though, as describing something as not particularly reliable does not really give an insight into which aspect of not good is there in this report or this paper. So if something isn't reliable, we can't just shortcut it like that. We need to go on in more detail to explain which aspects don't seem good enough to then go on and use this study and its results in practice. Our first clinical question about babies this month comes from Julie Aitkin and Joyce O'Shea at the Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow, up in Scotland. It concerns a term neonate, but one that is born really quite poorly and starts off with face mask ventilation. The setting of this is in a district general hospital on a night shift where the consultant isn't resident and the trainee that's doing this has previously done some endotracheal intubation but under supervision and in this situation tries three times to get the ET tube in without success, manages on the fourth and the baby improves and actually does well in the end. 
but the period of time of putting in the ET tube unsuccessfully made the trainee wonder about whether a laryngeal mask airway that they know is used in other situations could have been used more quickly, more successfully, and would have leaded less training. This leaves on to a structured clinical question asking when resuscitating a neonate at birth, importantly that patient group, with positive pressure ventilation, does a laryngeal mask airway more likely to be successful than with an endotracheal tube, particularly in the setting with people that haven't got an awful lot of experience? They went away and they searched a wide variety of places, including Medline, Embase, Dynamed and Best Practice, which are um, databases and products that look at the evidence and summarise it with a clinical context um, and sort of doing a pre-appraisal of the stuff. Also went on and looked at Cochrane, uh, clinicaltrials.gov for ongoing or poorly published trials, and also Google Scholar used a wide variety of words based around newborns and the different sorts of devices that you can use um, for laryngeal mask airway, but limited it to English for practical reasons. They found 345 potential results and actually went through in detail 112 of those, coming down to eight studies with a total of 874 infants overall. Of those studies, five of them compared laryngeal mask with face mask ventilation, and four of them, one of them doing both, compared laryngeal mask with endotracheal intubation. The studies ranged in size from around 50 or so infants all the way up to 369 infants. They were a wide variety of randomised studies, all of them unblinded, as you would expect, because you can know the answer, can't you, when you're doing a laryngeal mask or a face mask or an endotracheal intubation. And they all had, roughly speaking, the same sorts of results. They demonstrated that laryngeal mask was definitely better than face mask, and the failure rate for face mask was getting on for 20% or so, whereas the failure rate of laryngeal mask was around about 5% or so. And this is sort of what we receive and understand. When you look at the randomized trials comparing the laryngeal mask to the endotracheal tube, now, looking at this, they were actually comparable in terms of overall success rate of getting the laryngeal mask versus the other, uh, the proper endotracheal tube insertion. And the time taken to get success was around about the same in both. In terms of failure to insert on the first study, well, a little tiny bit better with the laryngeal mask, but not really very large numbers, only only sort of seven versus five in total when they added them all up. It certainly seems that for the study populations that they looked at, and this is largely in the, the sort of the bigger babies over one and a half kilos, 34 weeks or older, 
that the use of a laryngeal mask is as effective as endotracheal intubation. Maybe not better um, and hasn't really been studied in the smaller babies and, and here we're talking about potentially the limits of technology as well as the limits of the trials themselves and so could well be used in that bigger age group. I was wondering about this and I thought a lot of these studies are done when you have people that are relatively well trained in both and don't sort of reflect the situation of um, people with with less of the training in both devices. Um, and sometimes there is a limit on what you could do in a ethically approved sort of way um, versus what you can do if you put something into practice. Um, which leads on to all sorts of questions about applicability and how you take the best styles of evidence and put them in place. Certainly what this implies is that it is no worse and may, may be a thing that we'll be seeing more and more going on. Our next clinical question is also about term babies. These ones, perfectly well ones, that went home. And the question is, how much weight are they allowed to lose? If a three-day-old baby is born by elective cesarean section and exclusively best fed and noted to have a 10% loss of birth weight but clinically well and the midwife reports that now the infant is breastfeeding frequently, it's good latch, good suck, you wonder, is this actually acceptable or does she need a really good look at and a full medical evaluation? This question was raised by Victoria Knowles and Finn Kiran Yanyam from the Sidra Medical Centre in Doha in Qatar. They went away and they looked at Medline and Embase, used a range of key words to try and draw together the studies about weight loss and looking observationally about what was happening, what was, what was normal in this situation, identifying 517 potential studies, screening them, uh, dragging out 10 of them for a really full review, and then five of them were included in a big overview study. Now these five actually ranged enormously different in the size of them. One of them, which overwhelms all of the rest, is over 100,000 infants from the Kaiser Permanente hospitals at the back end of 2009 up to 2013. The others are also what would normally be considered a decent size, damn near a thousand or certainly over a hundred in different prospective cohorts across different areas of the UK and India and some bits of America as well. What these studies all do is they observe what happens in practice. They've primarily looked at healthy newborns and looking at a combination of babies that were breastfed or mixed fed or exclusively bottle fed, but well babies, and then assessed over time how much weight was lost by how many babies and were there any risk factors for greater loss and, and were there any complications at different rates and different areas of loss. What they did when they summarised all these things together was they found that there are certainly some risk factors for weight loss and they're the ones that I think that we would be expecting. Um, first babies, babies where the breastfeeding is difficult and babies born by caesarean section seem to be at greater risk of weight loss than those without those features. 
they also found that the 97.5th centile for weight loss was getting on for just over 12%. Now we use 10% in the UK, in the US the recommended level is 7% weight loss um, and they found that actually if you use that 10% uh, getting on for uh, 1 in 20 uh, vaginally delivered infants lose uh, over that 10% level and, and possibly up to 1 in 4 of cesarean section babies lose over 10% but it's only in the babies that were over the 12% or so that actually had problems of hypernatremia so there was a sort of a, a gap between the, the the number that we have and the 12% the where the the problems seem to kick in there is actually a website that allows you to track weight loss um, based on uh, physiological sort of parameters like mode of delivery, the weight, uh, mode of feeding and so on and that's linked to in this article. It's interesting that when you look at this you've got sort of two different thoughts going on. You've got how much is okay normal uh, thing that happens all the time and also how much goes alongside the issues of real medical complications from this situation? Well, what we've got here is relatively clear data that the actual serious problems kick in at the 12% plus level, but that at 10% plus, it does give us a little bit of a safety net in order to do a little bit more watching, a little bit more support, and maybe knowing that the cesarean section, the first babies and so on, are at greater risk, maybe that's where more effort can be placed. Now, actually, it might already be that a lot of effort is placed with those mothers already through the midwifery services. And I know that these vary around the country, but certainly the ones that we are aware of are very, very clued into this um, and are providing lots of support perhaps more research could be done on how to improve that and uh, get even better outcomes uh, uh, by working between paediatricians and midwives and maybe even looking at pandemic-based Zoom breastfeeding support. But that's for research, not for evidence-based medicine. We hope that these little snippets of stuff about newborn babies have been interesting to listen to. There are more things in the world of paediatrics than babies, so do absolutely feel free to send in non-neonatal questions as well. We love all sorts of different approaches to evidence-based child health, so don't hold back. You don't have to be a paediatrician, you can be a pharmacist, you can be a social worker, you can be a play therapist write in how evidence is helping you and we have a relatively supportive editorial approach that will help you through this system. We look forward to seeing your questions and hearing from you soon. <laughs>